Welcome to Connected Intelligence, a podcast about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Join us in conversation about the building blocks that bring complex ideas to life. Not the code, calculations, or research, but the bonds between teammates, connection to your purpose, and the character that you build along the way. I'm your host, Sonia Senek, and today our guest is Sinead Bovell. Sinead is a futurist and the founder of Way, an organization that helps prepare the next generation of business leaders for a world radically transformed by technology. Some may know Sinead as the author of the Vogue article, I'm a model and I know that artificial intelligence will eventually take my job. Sinead has given formal addresses to presidents, royalty, and Fortune 500 leaders on topics ranging from cybersecurity to artificial intelligence. She also gave a TEDx talk in 2022 on the ethics of avatars and currently serves as a strategic advisor to the United Nations International Telecommunication Union on digital inclusion. Prior to founding Way, Bovell worked as a management consultant for A.T. Kearney. She received her MBA from the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Every day, over 10,000 millennials and Gen Zs tune into Bovell's platforms to hear her take on technology in the future, as well as her future forecasts on the ethical challenges of emerging technologies. To date, Sinead has educated over 200,000 young entrepreneurs on the future of technology. In March 2023, Sinead is leading a keynote panel at Creative Destruction Lab's Apprentice Summit, a virtual international symposium of emerging technology for any high school student who is interested in learning more about STEM and entrepreneurship. We cover a ton of ground in this episode, from Sinead's origin story to her unlikely journey to the center of emerging technologies and her vision for the future of work. Sinead brings an open and imaginative quality to every conversation she's in. It was a joy learning more about her processes and vision for the future. Please enjoy Sinead Bovell. You have a degree in finance, a minor in chemistry, and an MBA. You then ended up in management consulting only to shift to modeling. And now you're known as the model who talks tech. Can you share a bit about how this journey has felt for you? Mm-hmm. It's, I guess, a little unconventional to, to say the least. I will say the 75% of what you had mentioned was in, in many ways part of the plan. The modeling part, of course, was not. And it all kind of came to a head uh, when I did all of the the different steps in my career uh, in academic world and still felt further from myself than, than ever before. So it was as if the further I went down a path, the further I was for myself. Uh, and it was in that kind of realization securing the management consulting job, finishing the MBA, uh, that the opportunity to model presented itself. And it's not that that was ever part of the plan, but I knew I would take that platform and do something different with it. And if there's one thing you can take away from, from a, you know, an MBA or a degree in business, it's you know, the thing that makes you different is often the competitive advantage. Uh, and I saw that as a, a potential stepping stone in this new world. But in terms of how it's felt, it's been, I guess, quite exciting crafting and draft my career from scratch without a blueprint. Uh, at times, it's it's a little scary, but for the most part, it's felt right. When you say it's felt right, I imagine you're feeling a lot more aligned with what you do and who you are. And you mentioned that you grew up chasing other people's versions of success. And just hearing you talk about the distance down the pathway of, of the education, the management consulting also growing a distance from yourself. Can you share a bit about when you knew that you were just too far away 
from where you felt you needed to be? And how did you navigate back? It started kind of creeping in uh, my first job out of university. I wasn't really passionate about it. And I chalked that up to, I'm just not high enough up at this company. And if I had a bit more autonomy, I would probably be more engaged. Right. So I went back and I did my MBA. Uh, and then when I stepped into the world of consulting and I loved everything that consulting had to offer and, and the types of problems I would get to work on. And I still felt this big disconnect. And it was when I landed the job full time and kind of signed the offer that the feeling of being disconnected from myself was, was it became physical. It was too big to ignore. I wasn't sleeping right. Uh, and it was kind of like this alarm bell was going off in my head, letting me know that this isn't who you want to be. Uh, and I'll clarify by saying, I don't think I should have or would have done anything differently in my background. I think getting the finance degree, chemistry, MBA, consulting, I needed all of those skills. It was just what I was striving for at the end uh, was what was out of alignment. What was it that you were striving for at the end? How would you define what Sinead right when you graduated thought that was versus Sinead today? It would have been what people would have, society would have agreed was something that demonstrated your intellectual capability. It was a respectable job. Uh, and for me, consulting did that in some ways. I, I genuinely did love what I got to learn and how much you got to learn uh, in that world. I really don't think there's anything like it. Uh, but that was, I had never stopped and asked myself, but is that what would make you happy? Uh, it just was, well, this is what demonstrates skills or your work ethic. And I don't think that that's a proper benchmark or scorecard to build a life around. The bio on your website also says that you're first generation Canadian. Would you be open sharing about your family's history and their pathway to Canada? Mm -hmm. So uh, my mom is Irish, born and raised in Ireland. My dad is Guyanese. We always joke that, uh, you know, dinner tables look like a UN meeting because nobody in my family has the same accent or skin tone, <laughs> so to speak, or hair color or anything. Uh, and my parents met in, in England in, in medical school in the 70s. So it was a very much a contentious time. Uh, and they both were kind of beating to their own drum and carving out a new path for themselves. And then their immigration story to Canada and really building a life from scratch, I think was a really big example for my sisters and I, one being their work ethic uh, and kind of having to figure it out as you go. And the second being doing things differently. I mean, a question I get asked a lot is, how did your family respond when you said, I'm actually going to return the suit and just go hit the runway quickly? <laughs> um, and they were nothing but supportive. They knew I would figure it out as they did uh, in their unconventional path at the time. Since modeling, you've also founded an organization called Way, or Weekly Advice for the Young Entrepreneur. It is a vehicle for you to inspire youth. As you say, the best thing we can do about the future is prepare for it. What was your original inspiration for Way? So when I stepped into the world of modeling and I was trying to get my own footing and, and figure out my identity in this world, my interest didn't go away in business technology in the future. And so I would show up at these fashion shoots talking about an M&A that's going to change everything or <laughs> how automation is going to impact this industry. And I would have like a little circle of photographers and stylists around me listening to these kind of ad hoc, hoc talks on, on the future. And so the light bulb kind of went off that, you know, this entire world of creatives and, and more artistic based jobs 
people are just as interested in conversations about technology in the future. They just haven't been invited to them. And the material hasn't been made accessible or digestible to broad markets, so to speak. Uh, and that was kind of the light bulb, bulb moment for Way. I'm, I guess, a bridge in, in some ways between this kind of nerdy past of mine and this new creative world that I inhibited. And that was kind of the, the light bulb moment for Way. And as you started building it, was there a moment that it really clicked? Like, okay, I had this idea and I knew I was right. It's working. Did you have a moment like that? Yes. Yeah, so there was kind of like a micro moments. I would put out these op-eds on the topic and listening to people's responses. Uh, you know, I understand the, how you worded this and I really appreciate that. But then when I held my first talk, it was on blockchain uh, and it was two Rotman graduates that that I went to school with that were on my panel and there wasn't the biggest turnout but how energized I felt looking into a room of models DJs investment bankers and entrepreneurs all in one roof trying to learn about the future and then I thought you know this is this is it and I felt incredibly energized I mean I think half of the people had to be there because they were like close friends and things um, but I still felt this is the lane uh, and none of the preparation I did up until this point felt like an ounce of work. This is definitely it. And not only this is the lane, this is Sinead's lane. Like it's your story, your interpretation of what all of those foundational skills, how they make sense in your life. You likely get to engage with a lot of young entrepreneurs and folks that are just really curious and figuring out how to find their path. Are there any moments you've had with people in your audience that have really stuck with you or helped reinforce that you're on the right path? And would you mind sharing a few of those moments with us? Sure. I think it's challenging for any Canadian to kind of admit when things are feel really great. <laughs> but I would say there are, whether it's the Instagram messages saying, I've changed my major uh, because of what I've learned, or um, I've recognized that we don't have to be one thing, that we're more than one thing. And I figured out how to build a career at the intersection of my passions. Those moments have really stuck with me. I mean, I think the thing that energizes me the most is, you know, after a way talk, people that wouldn't have considered themselves really in the tech world or STEM world at all, that become incredibly inspired by technology and want to go solve a problem with it. Those are the moments that I feel incredibly energized and grateful that it's what I get to do. And even your product has really innovated since you started it as well. You mentioned you started with op-eds, you did a few way talks. Now you have a really frequently visited TikTok. How do you stay up to date on what the best form of your content will be for your audience? And how do you get a, a sense of what they'll respond to best and meeting them where they are? Yeah. So that you hit the nail on the head. You have to meet the market where it is. So who are you targeting and where would they expect to find you? Uh, and even if they wouldn't necessarily expect to find that content, because if you're creating something original, it doesn't yet exist, but where are the people that you're targeting? So I guess that's also kind of business 101. And so for me, that was writing op-eds. It was a way to kind of test the waters uh, and see my communication style. But video, if you really want to resonate with the market, especially if they're Gen Z or millennial, uh, you have to show up where they are. And that's short form video content. And so I just continue to kind of be and pivot to where I think people would expect to find me lately in the past year that's been TikTok. <laughs> You've also spoken all over the world, including the United Nations and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. In January 2021, you were appointed to the United Nations International Telecommunications Union Generation Connect Visionaries Board 
to further champion the voices of youth to advance digital development and offer strategic guidance on youth participation and empowerment in digital cooperation. This also has a nice tie to you saying that your family dinner tables are like the United Nations. (laughs) It was a precursor. (laughs) Can you tell us more about that experience? Yeah, so that experience, uh, it's something that I'm really passionate about and, and proud of the work that we're doing. There's kind of two facets of giving guidance on youth involvement. So the first is most of the big decisions that have led the world to where we are today, the people who have to live with the consequence of them were never really invited to the table. Uh, And so step number one is how do we ensure that those who have to live with the decisions actually have a seat uh, and their opinion is is heard in the room. Uh, So we give the ITU guidance on on how you can kind of generate youth voices and and give them an adequate seat at the table. Uh, The second thing is there's a good portion of youth under 25 that don't have access to the internet uh, or for cultural reasons aren't necessarily invited into rooms where they can partake in technology, uh, which means we are at risk of leaving an entire generation of people behind because if you can't really connect to the internet, you can't connect to the economy. So how do we reach this next generation um, if they're not necessarily reachable in traditional ways or through our current kind of technological pipeline, so to speak. So how do we build those channels uh, that don't yet exist? And I've also learned a lot in this role uh, that I wasn't necessarily aware of. Speaking of of reaching youth and, and connecting in, you and I know each other through the Creative Destruction Lab. In addition to our venture program at CDL, we run a high school program for young women identifying students. We have our first ever CDL Apprentice Global Summit in celebration of International Women's Day on March 7th. And students of all genders from all over the world are going to be streaming in. It's a free two-hour event, virtual. The link to register is in the show notes if you or anyone from your family or community might be a good fit for this event. But the exciting part of this is Sinead is going to be moderating our keynote panel with other youth leaders at the summit. What topics are you looking forward to engaging with them on, Sinead? Oh, I'm so excited for this conversation. Uh, Just side note, putting that in there. So I think um, the the path to STEM that some of the young leaders have taken, and they're inspiring, they're also unconventional. uh, And I think it's important to elevate and lift up those stories to highlight the fact that any path can lead to STEM, right? Technology intersects with everything that we do. It's the foundational layer behind but you know, under the future that we're building. Uh, so all paths in some ways lead to STEM. Uh, so helping people kind of uncover, you know, whatever it is that interests you or that you're curious about in this world and how you can potentially connect that to technology to advance or accelerate that mission. So those would be, I'd say, a few of the things that I'm looking forward to touching on. So innovation can be a bit scary because you're dealing with a lot of unknowns. And for folks that are maybe in high school or just getting into university, they may feel like they don't have their footing underneath them on all the topics that you need to know to stay up to date. For anyone who's listening right now, who's curious to learn more in this space, but maybe feel too overwhelmed to start, what would be your best advice for them? So I would recommend pick a problem in the world that you're passionate about solving uh, or an area of the world that you're you're curious about. And just simply ask a search engine, how is technology helping or solving this problem? Or how is artificial intelligence being used to solve this problem? And the first few things that you'll read will really just open your eyes to an entirely new world that you could potentially be inspired by uh, or could give you ideas. And then I would also recommend uh, read kind of the basics of things like 
AI 101 and try to invent ways that you would use this technology if you had all of the money in the world and all of the resources in the world to apply it to, to your own life or, or to your own problem. And you can see how innovative you organically are. I think we think that we need this kind of precursor, prerequisite of skills, um, and we have to be qualified to kind of ideate on topics or, or problems that we want to solve. And no, I think most most innovation comes from imagination. That is something that most humans are naturally endowed with. It's not necessarily something that you learn. In fact, if you learn how to be imaginative, uh, it probably isn't very imaginative at all. It's probably kind of structured. So trust yourself to have fun with that process and see if I had access to this technology, what would I invent uh, and how would I apply it to this problem and just you know go from there. So in today's world, I think a lot of folks can maybe feel like their attention is being pulled in so many different directions. And creating space to be creative, spend time doing a deep dive into a topic, maybe they don't feel like they can create that time. So I'm curious, Sinead, how do you create that time in your calendar, your very busy schedule, time for just imagining and thinking? So one thing that's been really helpful is I'm very intentional about literally how I spend my time. So that starts with the beginning of the week. I've highlighted or written down what I want to accomplish that week. And if one of the goals is ideating and literally just thinking that gets scheduled in. Uh, and I take it that seriously because we are in an attention economy and everything is competing for our time, uh, regardless if we really realize it or not. So being very intentional uh, about sectioning that off uh, and then giving once I've given that time, maybe it's Wednesday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., I treat it like I would a meeting or a panel. I give it the valid space and time that it deserves uh, to fully think. I think some people will, will rush it on a Sunday night. They'll say, okay, I'll just kind of lie on the couch and hope to imagine. But if you want your ideas to really take you somewhere uh, or to spark curiosity, you have to take them seriously and give them the space that they need to breathe. So I really do schedule that in. I schedule complete thought and whatever I need to start my day to get me in that mind frame. So sometimes it's I need to just wake up and read and go on a walk and then I'm I'm ready to go. Uh, I kind of lean into whatever I'm feeling in that morning, but I definitely schedule time. Uh, and I don't know if that sounds great or not that I have to schedule time to, to innovate, but it helps me take it seriously. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel like even going to the gym is easier when your friend's going to the gym with you. You know, you both agree to be there at a certain time. Mm -hmm. You have that commitment like, oh no, like I'm going to let my best friend down. I don't want to do that. For the young folks that are listening and just getting into these habits and figuring out how to create that discipline, what are some things you use to coach yourself to go, no, I'm investing in my future by spending this time? What, what types of things do you say to yourself? I mean, one thing is, is this who I want to be? Or is this next action or step or way I'm going to spend my time moving me closer to the person I want to become? And that doesn't have to be that every single thing has to be a, a marathon run and, and winning a championship. Um, but largely, is this moving me in the direction that I think is closer to my dream self uh, or dream identity? And I think, you know, one, one way that I phrase that is, you know, nothing in life is ever worth waking up and not being the person you want it to be. So I really try to weigh each thing that I'm about to do with that mindset. Uh, and sometimes it is, a, you know, what's a part of that is having fun and living in the moment. Um, but knowing, you know, you have to think about your future self while also living in the present, uh, having things like, you know, some people use vision boards or, or things where you can write down your, your goals and what you're striving towards, because then you can see the progress. 
um, give yourself the time to congratulate, even if you just completed what your to-do list was for the day, because then it shows you, you can count on yourself uh, and how those little micro decisions add up to the macro version of the person you want to become. And, but also make time for fun. That's also a part of it. It's not all just, you know, rigid working, so to speak. Um, but making an effort to move yourself directional uh, and you'll feel you'll feel the reward of, of doing that. So when you reflect on your time with Way so far, what has been one of your most fun moments that you've experienced? I think, you know, Bloomberg has always been a company and a news organization that I really admired. Uh, this is where I guess the, the MBA hat gets thrown on. Uh, so I've always really looked up to them. I read them day in and day out. And getting to host a talk with them on artificial intelligence and also kind of curate it to the way atmosphere. Like you would walk into Bloomberg, Drake was playing. Uh, It was very much an environment that in some ways wouldn't necessarily seem Bloomberg-ish and getting to mesh what I wanted to bring to the table with what also Bloomberg had. And that was a lot of fun. And it was also the first way talk where there was like a control room and people working (laughs) in it. So that felt really cool. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. You were standing in the dream that you had envisioned however many years before. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> really cool. So what is your ultimate goal and vision for Way? Mm-hmm. I think continuing to help people feel prepared and calm and in some ways control over the future. Uh, content has been really effective for us and focusing more on the media lanes of getting that message out. Uh, In an ideal world, we are scaling it so we can be producing more and faster. But yeah, in a a dream world where, you know, we're touring our talks uh, a little more frequently, we have a bit more repetitive and kind of concrete programming on areas of science technology in the future. And I think what's been so refreshing is in these last few years, these types of conversations have become entertainment. Uh, And we Mm -hmm. like to consider some of the material we teach as also a form of entertainment. You're not just coming to a way talk and just walking out with with an encyclopedia. Uh, Hopefully you're entertained in some ways. And I think that's the best way to make the content register. Infotainment. Exactly. Can we trademark that? (laughs) Can we? (laughs) And I'm wondering, you use the word calm and you use the word control when you describe the future vision. Why are those two words in that description of your vision? So when it comes to the words, yeah, calm and control, I think a lot of people feel like technology in the future happens to them, not with them. Mm. They wake up and their identity and their agency in some way is involved in a problem, whether that's their data has been used or or algorithms have sent them down a rabbit hole, but they don't feel like they have any control over the situation. I mean, I use the word calm when you're informed about what could be in the pipeline, you naturally feel a lot more prepared uh, and that's a lot more calm. And so those are the two words that uh, tend to stick out for me when when it comes to educating and, and doing what I do. So I want to talk a little bit about the future of work. It's a very broad concept. So when you hear the term future of work, it can mean a lot of things like hybrid work environments, shared office spaces, chat GPT, writing your emails or your assignments for you, how would you define the future of work? The future of work, it's it's a constantly evolving definition. If we want to get technical, I would say it's how will work get done over the next decade, right? How will society, uh, generational shifts, 
uh, technological shifts impact how we actually work. So if I was to kind of put a forecasting lens on that, of course, uh, things like AI, I think we are stepping into the the decade where we co-create pretty much everything with AI. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an exciting an exciting chapter. Of course, there are some risks and that that go with it. Uh, but I think the the decade where we stream artificial intelligence, similar to how we stream the internet, and I think that that's something that we're starting to get a little bit of a peek in. Uh, whether that's ChatGPT helping you write a blog, um, or a Dolly or image generator helping you, you know an image for that blog. Uh, but pretty much any problem that we have, we will have artificial intelligence as a, as a teammate. And so I think that's really exciting. Um, hybrid work environments. Yes, I think we're not going back uh, to a world where we have to be somewhere Monday to Friday, nine to five, uh, unless you physically literally have to, to be somewhere. What you do can also be behind a computer. Uh, I think things are going to become even more hybrid uh, going forward and, and even more flexible, so to speak. Um, and then, of course, what is this world called the metaverse? Is it happening? Is it not? Is it a scam? Is it is it real? Are we in it right now? Are we in it right now or are we in a simulation? So I think regardless of how you define the metaverse, the technologies that we use to interface with the world are changing. We know smartphones will eventually go away. Phones have always evolved, smarter, closer to our bodies, uh, smaller. And so how we interface with technology is going to change, which means how we access work uh, is going to change in the coming years. So whether that's through smart glasses um, or potentially kind of virtual augmented worlds, uh, we'll see what kind of wins out over that. But expect to have some changes in how the devices you interact with work going forward. What advances have you seen in the last five to 10 years that you believe have improved our working environment or work life? Yeah, I think some of the advances that go quite unnoticed that I think play a pretty big role, important role, uh, even going from 3G to 4G to 5G has drastically improved our ability to be plugged in from anywhere if that's where you want, uh, whether you are on a hike and can respond to an email because you didn't set your out of office on. So things like that are actually quite monumental in improving our, our work lives. Uh, I think video conferencing, it has existed for years, like five, six, seven years. Of course, COVID shone a light on how impactful it can be and how effective it can be. Um, But I think that's a technology that's really moved us uh, a few years into the future. Um, And then I'm trying to think, I would say the sharing economy and the gig economy. So being able to source support, whether that's a PowerPoint deck or video editing or marketing analyst uh, from a freelance marketing platform or a gig economy like Upwork, for example, uh, that's been helpful on more of a macro scale in terms of things like lowering unemployment numbers if somebody's in more of a transition. Uh, but it's also equipped entrepreneurs and startups with leapfrog capabilities in many ways. Uh, you have access to a team for as ever, however long you need them for. Um, And you can kind of negotiate that price point. So I think that those have been some effective ways technology has improved our work environments. Were there any changes put in place over the last five to 10 years that did not have their desired positive impact? And would you mind sharing any examples? Hmm. I guess it hasn't even been put in place properly or deployed at the scale it was promised. I think blockchain is a technology that It definitely hasn't had the desired impact that it was supposed to. Uh, That's not to say that there aren't really valuable use case of of it. And I mean, of course, there are private blockchains and and they are doing well in certain areas and adding value. But I think 
largely we're still kind of waiting for the moment uh, where blockchain kind of changes the world. And I think, you know, there's the the two sides to everything. So while broadband improvements and data improvements have been great, uh, they also have led us to some questions as to when does work stop and life begin? Um, what does it mean to be always on? And that raises some very legitimate questions and, and impacts in, in mental health and things. So I think that as much as its technology has made work a lot easier and more flexible, uh, for those same reasons, there are some kind of human struggles that, that accompany it. And when you think back to your life in management consulting versus your life as an entrepreneur now, do you feel any difference in the always on drive, the push and the pull to be always on still there? And have you evolved in the way that you manage that momentum? That's a really great question. And nobody's ever asked me that before. Yes. (laughs) The, The pressure and temptation to always be on exists. Especially for me, work comes in many different facets and ways, whether that's creating a video on TikTok to meet the moment of an important tech story, um, or knowing that there's probably an email that's going to come in at 10 p.m. that I should check because it could make the rest of my week go a lot better. The temptation is, is there. The pressure is a little bit less, and I'm able to set my boundaries a little bit more. Uh, for example, I have a no social media after 8 p.m. boundary, and I really, really try to not check email past 8 p.m. And I'd say 80% of the time when it comes to email, I'm good. Versus as a consultant, isn't necessarily your dime. Like you really, if somebody emails you, they have to reach you. At least for me, you know, I I lose out, I guess, in, in the end, and I'm okay with that loss. Uh, but in in the world of consulting, I didn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't not answer the call. Uh, let's say at, you know whether it's 10, 11 p.m., 5 a.m. Why was it important for you to bring yourself to the world through social media? And do you ever get nervous to post things online? Yeah, I think my audience and the people I'm trying to reach are on social media. It's there are platforms that don't have a lot of barriers to access. So I think that that's also important if we want to bring more voices to the table and we want people to feel empowered about the future, we need to make sure we're communicating in channels that are easily accessible for a lot of people. Uh, So that was another reason why it was important. Um, And social media also makes it easy to reach a lot of people. The algorithms and the the creator tools, they're effective. Do I ever get worried to post things? That definitely happens. There are things that I talk about, topics that I talk about that I know Some people have a different position on, but I think it's important. You have to know what you stand for. And if you think that in some way, a company, a person, an innovation crosses a line that you don't think is going to be in the best interest of whatever people that you're advocating for or just humanity at large, I think it is worth using your platform to to stand for that and to stand for something. And, And I know people, they trust me to also speak on certain issues and I have to show up uh, where those issues arise. And of course, I've, I've been at the, the kind of not so great end of sharing an opinion or a position on topics uh, that has gotten a lot of pushback uh, from people that have older viewpoints on things that, that haven't really uh, modernized with the times. Uh, and you have to be okay with that. If you know you're genuinely doing this from a place of this is how I think the world can get better. Uh, and this is the best use of my skills or the information that I have. I think it's worth standing up for something uh, and standing for something. I'm thinking of that quote 
if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. Mm-hmm. Could you share with us what topic caused that backlash? Yes. So one of the areas was communicating about some of the problems of sexual harassment in digital spaces. So any commentary I make on that is often pushed back on that it's a digital space. Sexual harassment doesn't actually exist. Um, You can just shut your computer or exit the metaverse game or whatever it is that you are participating in digitally and it all goes away. And that is obviously not the case. Uh, and that's been backed by by science and researchers. Harassment comes in many forms. Um, and some of it could be an email, a text message. It could be physical. And we have to be open and to understanding how that could show up in, in the technologies that we're building and deploying. So that has definitely gotten pushback. And even recently, I've been talking a lot about some of the complicated ethics of avatars. So who gets the right to play different roles uh, in behind avatars. And I do think it's amazing that we're going to, you don't have to show up in, in a metaverse environment or in a digital environment and use an avatar that looks like you. I think it's a really good thing that we can experiment with different identities. But do I think that it could be problematic if, say, a non-Black person used a Black avatar for Black History Month and spoke at an event in the metaverse and got paid, got paid for it, for that opinion? I think that that's problematic. And although that might seem like a far-out fantasy, there are present day examples of that happening right now. So calling attention to that, some people again say it doesn't matter. It's a digital world. It doesn't exist. Uh, And I've gotten a lot of pushback on it. And at first I would say I would zoom into some of the, the negative comments and try to explain myself. And I still do try to have compassion for where somebody might be coming from and do my best if I have the skills and the time to break it down in a different way. But then also sometimes knowing that that's okay that people aren't going to agree with you and you have to be okay with that. And also remembering that you're speaking to your audience and taking your position for them and letting them know where you stand. It's not actually for the other folks. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The work environment is very dynamic. It exists and shapes us. However, we also shape it every time we engage with it. What advice do you have to folks who want to more positively impact their work environments? One thing would be... Don't be afraid to be the change you want to be at your workplace. I think a lot, there are some instances where we think work might not be meeting the moment uh, or something didn't exist that we want to see. Uh, and don't be afraid to be the person that creates it. I think sometimes we also feel like there that there's a hierarchy and you have to get to a certain, you have to earn a certain amount of trust uh, to advocate for things uh, or to create and initiate things. And I don't think that that's the case at all. And I think things have changed a lot uh, and people are actually hoping that you come forward. Um, I think com- creating committees or, or projects. Um, I know people who have personally used their social media platforms to advocate and talk about in- industry-related information that they're passionate about from a different angle. And then their workplace has gone on to say, can you help create stuff for us? Uh, So again, kind of taking things into your own hands, not being afraid to do things a bit differently um, and and creating things from scratch if you don't if you don't see it on the path right in front of you. I'm thinking about the beginning of our conversation when you mentioned that when you were in management consulting, you were thinking, okay, when I get that title or when I get that promotion, it'll feel good. It'll make sense. And I'll feel like I can express myself as Sinead. Can you think back to that moment and how you felt And 
some of our listeners may be in that situation right now thinking, okay, if I just get the title of manager or once I'm in charge of this section, it'll make sense. Our life is happening to us right now. We're shaping our work lives every day that we go into them. How would they get over that fear of taking that step to say, Hey, you know, I want to start this new initiative. Like there's a little bit of fear. Um, and there may be a lot of fear in some cases, what are some pieces of advice you could give to overcome that piece? Yeah. So there's a few things there. The one being somebody who's just waiting for a title and a manager and, and just kind of elevating through the hierarchy. I'd say specifically to that piece, it doesn't matter how high up you are in a lane you aren't passionate about, it will probably never feel right. So if you're just kind of seeking different levels and in hierarchies and and riding the corporate elevator, it's not going to feel right uh, at every level. That aside, if you are if you're scared to to put your hand up and to do something different, I think if you kind of read the room in the climate right now and you see that many companies are hoping that somebody steps in and does the thing, that they don't even really know how to take a position uh, or how to meet the moment. Uh, And people are looking at you as somebody taking initiative and then kind of a bright star that's shaking things up and and changing things. Of course, um, there's a way that you can kind of, you want to think intentionally about how you go about that. um, And, you know, whether that's organizing a meeting or or what it may be, depending on your your corporate culture. Uh, But I think if it's something that you're passionate about and excites you, and you see it as an opportunity for your for your company. It's probably going to be a win win. Um, and of course, you know if you, you'll miss the shots you don't take. So if you choose to to not do it, you'll 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 never know. And I think if you do kind of get shut down, and it's something that seems like it's the right step for a company, and it's really where we are in the moment and in society, maybe that's also not the right fit for you long term. Um, maybe you're kind of being a little bit too contained, and there's somewhere else that you can kind of shine your star. And you'll get invaluable information from just trying. Absolutely. That negotiation uh, experience and that advocacy are invaluable skills that you can use anywhere. So you've been featured in the New York Times and Vogue, and you were recognized by Wired for your work in bringing new faces to the table in tech. Can you share a bit about how those recognitions felt, especially after evolving past chemistry and finance and an MBA to the runway to your own organization? How does it feel in those moments where the spotlight shines on you a bit and it validates and recognizes the amazing contributions you're making to the tech ecosystem? Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. It feels good to to know that what you stand for is helping and what you believe in, others believe in too. Uh, and even if they didn't, if it's something that you're passionate about, you you keep going. But I think when you take risks in your life and you kind of step into a lane that you don't really know anything about, and you're just leading with your intuition that I think this is going to bring me you know, closer to the person I've become, those little small moments of recognition uh, can be really helpful. It's such as, you know, whether it's a, it's a wired or whatever it may be in your life. But I'll also say that the blueprint that you've built for yourself in your life from the, your professional experiences, your personal experiences, your academic experiences, that sets you up uh, for really anything. So when you get you know, the recognition and the validation, it can feel really great. But know that, that that's bound to happen um, if you just take that chance and you lean into the skills that you've built. Uh, and that you trust yourself to to take that leap. One of your 
most frequently viewed posts is I'm a model and I know that artificial intelligence will eventually take my job. Were you scared to write that sentence knowing that you were going to be out of a job? And what was the response like to that post? So I had been thinking about it for a while. I also have compassion for automating people's careers. And so as much as I knew that that was coming for mine as a fashion model, a lot of people didn't think that about that. And not everybody necessarily has kind of a secondary they can pivot into. So that I was a little bit worried about. But as soon as I even pitched the idea to Vogue, they responded like four minutes later with like, oh, my <laughs> goodness, we've never really thought about this. And this is something we should think about. And when I shared it, the surprise um, a lot of people were taken aback and not even just people in the creative world that so it would impact people in the tech world that also hadn't really thought about all of the different ways technology is going to intersect with our future. And one thing that we're learning now with art and creativity is that it's not necessarily something that's uniquely human. Mm. Uh, so whether it's fashion modeling, whether it is designing a piece of clothing, whether it's painting an image, there are ways that technology will intersect with that. Um, and in some ways augment it, and in some ways automate it. Uh, in fashion modeling, it is no longer any different. For the parents listening, how do you recommend they make space for their children to explore their curiosity and pursue their passions? So one thing that I do with my nieces and nephews, for example, is I've try to move away from asking questions like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And even though that's a question that's usually meant with the best heart and honesty, it's, you know, the future, most of the jobs that exist today probably won't exist by the time somebody, you know, 10 or under gets to the workforce. Uh, so focus less on, on careers for your kids and, and more on problems that they like to solve. The things that they're curious about, have lean into that with them. Uh, give them space to imagine, uh, encourage them to use their imagination. And if you if you do know a little bit about technology, introducing them to, to tech concepts, because you'd be surprised. I, even with my nieces and nephews, while they're all under 10, we have ethical conversations, um, knowing that once they get older, they'll be making these types of decisions. And so I'll say things like, if a car is being driven by a robot and it gets into an accident, should the people in the car be aware? Should it be the people who built the car? And they'll have a debate. So don't don't underestimate mm -hmm. the skills uh, and the human instinct and the curiosity that kids have and let them experiment with that. Uh, or another thing that I do with them, you know, I'll, I'll explain what a 3D printer is uh, and ask them how they would use it. And some of them say, oh, I would print all my snacks at home so we don't have to drive <laughs> to the store anymore to help climate change. And so their imagination just goes, but it's really helping them to flex those imaginative muscles and, and those curiosities and really helping them to, to elevate them and highlight them. And that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think the most important word in that sentence is what, as opposed to who, right? And it sounds like you've really shaped your career and your pathways all around truly who you are. And getting a chance to connect with our CDL Apprentice students in a few weeks time on that. I'm, I'm so thrilled that you're going to be talking to them about that. So now, Sinead, you have educated more than 10,000 young entrepreneurs on the future of technology. If you could go back in time and meet your 15-year-old self, what do you think you'd say to her? I think I would say you have to define success for yourself. I think that all of the tossing and turning and uncertainty that I experienced in changing my career and even still experience 
um, you're always growing and evolving. And so it's never just, oh, you've you know cracked the code and it's all smooth sailing. But I think early on, really drilling at home, you know, shake off anything society defines as successful or helpful or effective. Uh, what is it that would make you happy? If there was no such thing as salary or job title, what problem would you want to be solving? And, you know, one thing that I do now with for people that don't necessarily know where to start with that, they like, I don't even know what I'm passionate about. And I call it, um, you know, a CNN test. You know, if in 10 years, CNN called you because you are an expert on something and they needed your opinion, what would it be for? And right away, people think, oh, I've you know, improved gender equity or I've done something in climate change or I've done something in space. And those are your natural curiosities and lean into them. I think defining success and listening to that inner voice requires you to get quiet and spend time reflecting and like it's internal. No one else can tell you, even if you have a personal board of directors of friends and family members that mean well, none of them are on your path. None of them have been where you are or are going where you're going. How do you integrate that into your life, given the demands on your time and all the great work you're doing? How do you make sure that you touch base with that every step along the way? For the last few years and since starting way, have really gotten clear on my 10-year vision. Who is that person in 10 years? And of course, it's a moving target, right? But having that vision and having no limits on it, in an ideal world, there's no limits on capital or time or resources. Who is that and what is she doing? And then continuing to bring that vision and that visual to life over and over. So whether that's, I've just left a meeting and I feel quite stressed, taking a second to reconnect and think about that image uh, to I'm really excited about something and is it in line with what I'm, I'm trying to do? But getting really clear on that 10-year vision and reflecting on it, I mean, weekly, if not daily, um, mm-hmm. I think about it constantly. Who is she? What is she doing? Uh, what does that all look like? Paint the scene, get the setting. Um, they put no limit on capital and reach or anything else that would be helpful or relevant uh, and continue to bring that to your mind. I think a lot of people can get dragged into, well, I can do this. I, I could do that. I, I am capable of doing that. I, I guess I should. Something sort of appears in their pathway and they go, I'm capable enough to do that. Maybe that's for me. Maybe it's here for a reason. And what you're talking about is actually a completely reverse approach, which is, no, I have a clear picture. That's what it is. And I'm going to revisit it every minute of the day that I can or that I need to. Did you also feel the pull of, I'm sure you must get many offers or opportunities that you could do. And how do you approach saying no? Is it hard for you to say no? Yeah. So the opportunities come in and they they conflict and I can't really extend myself in all ways. It used to be harder. I used to think I needed to do every single thing to get closer to who I wanted to be. And in some ways, uh, I didn't always have opportunities to kind of shuffle between. So there was an element of you still have to put in the work and show up um, and, and invest and do all of that. Uh, and now in terms of if something I think I'm not going to necessarily be able to add the most value to it, uh, or it's not in alignment with what I'm trying to do, uh, or even if it's in an industry or a company that kind of conflicts with my values, uh, I just have to set a boundary. Uh, and also knowing future opportunities will come through. You have to really mm-hmm. believe in that. 
Um, and that, you know, you're not really shutting this door, you're simply opening another one. And that that one that you're opening is, is time and space and availability to, to kind of give it your all uh, or for, for to not compromise you or what you need to do in this week. Um, but you really do have to have to believe that more things are going to come down in the pipeline. Um, and really, what is the best use of your time and be OK to turn down the things that aren't. And those great fit opportunities will not pass you by. Absolutely. In fact, when you turn things down, you really do make space and time for the things that are going to be a right, perfect intersection for where you need to be and what you need to be doing. Welcome to The Debrief, the meeting after the meeting. We're joined by your host, Sonia Senek, and a couple of her friends from work, Amar Kaur and me, Elizabeth Chim. Hi, everybody. Hi, Sonia. Hello, Sonia. Wow, I feel more imaginative after listening to Sinead speak. Absolutely. So I did just try to practice something that she recommended as to look up how technology impacts a topic that you're very passionate about. I'm very passionate about wildlife conservation, and I just put in the question to chat GPT as to how technology is impacting wildlife conservation. And it gave me a really cool answer. And she was 100% right. I had no idea there were this many possibilities. And I'm intrigued. What was the answer? So one, GPS and satellite tracking of wildlife animals. Drones can be used to survey and map wildlife habitats. DNA analysis on animals. Artificial intelligence can be used to analyze all of this data. So I thought all of that was super cool. That's very cool. Type in, how is technology impacting live music? I like how you did the, the typing. The podcasters can't see that I was also air typing. <laughs> <laughs> so music production, so advances in music technology, such as audio workstations, the music production process, live performances. Technology has enabled artists to enhance live performances through the use of various tools. Okay, I'm going to stop you there. Justin Bieber did a virtual concert. <laughs> he did a concert in the metaverse two years ago. I attended yes. virtually and it did feel like I was just watching. You know how sometimes before you start a video game, they do a pre-story? Yeah, like the cutscene. Yeah. So it just felt like a whole bunch of those. It did have his a song in the background. And every now and then they'd show you the real Justin Bieber in a picture in picture on the bottom left-hand side. So you'd see that he was actually singing and dancing and doing his thing, but it wasn't as immersive as I thought. What I'll say is I think there's room for continued development. And I'm sure mm -hmm. five years from now, we'll all be attending front row seats in the metaverse. So my question is, are you still there or have you made it back to reality? <laughs> I am still in the Justin Bieber metaverse concert. Yes. <laughs> what was the question you put in? How is technology going to affect the future of chai tea? Yes, always a question, but I was going to ask photography because I know oh. technology has already impacted it so much. Yeah. And I've seen it grow so much in the time that I've been doing photography and that hasn't been very long. Well, this whole idea that it can create images that aren't photographs of real things. And the reason that I find that so interesting is because there's already so much debate amongst photographers and then the viewers of those photographs of editing and how far yeah. do you go when it comes to editing and like 
What do you remove? What do you keep? How do you replace a background? Do you have a position on this? Because I saw this beautiful photography online of it was a wedding photograph and they were on a waterfront and then the photographer posted the behind the scenes that there was actually boats and people all over that waterfront and she had gone in and digitally removed them all and made it look just like there was no one else in the world but this couple that was about to get married how do you feel about this Mar? so two stances one i agree with exactly the example that you gave and agree in the sense that I would do the same thing because your focal point, you're capturing um, a wedding moment for somebody. It should be them. And unfortunately, you can't time it at the right time of the day where there's no one in the back. And no boats. Exactly. That's something you can control. I think my style of editing is I will enhance the, the colors, the contrast, the brightness to match what I saw in real life. And the camera just couldn't capture the color the exact same way. But if I do it any more than that, like if I make the sky much more orange than it actually was, then I'm not showing people the real thing that I saw. Is sepia tone still in? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> it kind of is. I've seen people do that style. And there we go. <laughs> it's going to make a comeback. Okay. Are you, are you editing your photos on your iPhone? I just click sepia tone and it oh, looks man. a little bit rustic. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you both if there was a certain thing that you wanted to be when you grew up. A rock climber. What? Yeah, that was my answer. <laughs> and then I realized I was afraid of heights quite early in life. And I thought, what do I do now? See, and this is kind of in line with what Sinead's opinion was of this is why you really shouldn't ask kids, <laughs> kids. and make them decide what they want to be when they grow up at such a young age. Did you have an answer? Mine was a veterinarian. Oh, I love animals. But then, yeah, my reality also shattered when I found out that being a vet, you mostly deal with sick animals and you're not just petting dogs all day. <laughs> yeah. Amar, did you have an answer for what you wanted to be? So there were, I think there's two versions. The one I haven't shared is I think when I was super young, um, it was probably teacher. And it's because I would follow my mom and dad around. They had a tuition college specifically in India. And my mom had a little whiteboard just for me that I would be teaching. (laughs) (laughs) But then another thing I shared with both of you is astronaut. So as soon as I got off of that, um, this this whole concept of space and and going to space was stuck in my mind until I found out you need 20-20 vision. Another reality shattered. Don't ask kids what they want to be when they grow up. (laughs) 